0: Now let's read God's word. Shall we listen to uh, what Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 12? Follow along as I read in your copy of the scriptures. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. George Swinnick was a uh, Puritan preacher. He lived in Great Britain in the 1600s. And here is a sentence with which he began one of his books. He said, Our eternal happiness consists in large part in our perfect knowledge of the blessed and boundless God. Our eternal happiness <clears throat> consists in large part in our perfect knowledge of the blessed and boundless God. Now, we're not used to talking this way, either about happiness or about God. Uh, We're more focused, we don't think very much about our eternal happiness. We're more focused on thinking about what will make us happy in the next half hour. And what does God have to do with our happiness anyway? Uh, Do Christians, real Christians, talk about happiness this way? Uh, Maybe I should simplify it. That will help us a little bit. I'm going to take out the, uh, uh, the adjectives there. How about this? Our happiness consists in part in our knowledge of God. Our happiness consists in part in our knowledge of God. If you want to be happy, know God. Now, you might be skeptical of that sentence a little bit. Um, You shouldn't be uh, because I, I think, if nothing else, you can at least concede that you know people, human beings, who make you happy, that knowing them fills your life with happiness. This past Monday, I had the opportunity to go to the memorial service for Mary Rhodes Uh, John, who just prayed uh, his grandmother, and uh, Dave Rhodes' mother, and I went to the service on Monday. Um, I met Mary Rhodes a couple times. She was introduced to me as Grammy, because lots of people call her Grammy, and if you're one of her great-grandchildren, because she worked at the pizza shop, you might call her Grammy Slice. That's how that worked. Reminded me of my great-grandmother. We called her Grandma Cookie, so for similar reasons. Well, one of the, the nice things about being at that memorial service on Monday was to hear uh, uh, Grammy's grandchildren speak about how she made them happy, what she did for them, how the time they spent with her playing Pinochle or just visiting with her or going places with her, how life was better with Grammy. Grammy is the source of happiness. So we can make the sentence this. How about this? Our happiness consists in part in knowing Grammy, right? Right? That makes sense to you. Uh, Some of you, you won't be able to know Grammy in this life, but you have someone in your life like this. Or maybe for someone, you are Grammy, right? Our happiness consists in large part in our knowledge of God. If that's true... Our most important priority is to know God. Give yourselves over to knowing him. And my job as a Bible teacher is to warn you, on the one hand, warn you against false, uh, counterfeit sources of happiness. The world is filled with them. There is nothing in this world that will make you as happy as God himself will. So to warn you against those, And then secondly, my job is to magnify this blessed and boundless God so that you might find happiness in him. And today, to that end, we're going to talk about the goodness of God. We're going to talk about the goodness of God. The goodness of God is what fuels this paragraph from the Lord Jesus. The goodness of God looms large in this paragraph. You can see it in part in verse 11 where Jesus says, your father in heaven gives good gifts to those who ask him our god is good he is the good gift giving god now the focus of these paragraphs these verses is the fruit of that goodness of god what does knowing god's goodness produce in someone's life what are the practical applications practical implications of believing and having confidence in the goodness of god And you can see for a portion of our time in a little bit, in a few minutes, I'm going to show you from the text two implications of the goodness of God. Believing in the goodness of God will make you a blank person. I'm going to help you fill those blanks in. You probably could do that yourself, you're good Bible readers. But just for a minute, I want to talk with you about what I mean by the goodness of God. What do we mean when we're talking about the goodness of God? first thing I want to do is I want to distinguish between God's holiness and God's goodness. There is a difference between the two of them as I want to describe them to you this morning. God's holiness refers to his moral perfection, that he is upright, he is righteous, he is unique in righteousness and moral uprightness, he always does the right thing. He is rightness. He defines the right thing. All rightness and all claims of being right should be compared to God and measured by God's standard. Now, God's holiness is the subject of chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount, the passages that we've already looked at. Look back, for example, at at chapter 5, verse 20. Here Jesus talks about the a standard of righteousness, Matthew 5:20, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. There is a standard of righteousness. There is a standard of righteousness by which you will be measured. It's not the standard of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. The standard of uprightness is God himself. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 48, just across the page. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. He's the standard. He's the righteous one. He is the morally upright one. Now, this comparison that Jesus is drawing out in verse 20, uh, if I can just uh, think about this for a little bit here, um, Jesus is plugging into a tendency that all of us have as human beings, one that I would suggest to you is an unhealthy tendency, and that's the tendency to compare and contrast ourselves with others. The Pharisees did it in matters of faith. We do it in all kinds of ways. And the reason that we compare and contrast ourselves with one another is to try to find value in ourselves, validation, worth. I matter because, in comparison to other people, I am, and we fill in the blank. We do this all the time. You could do it in the classroom. I am the smartest fourth grader in Mrs. Alcott's class, and therefore, I matter. I have worth. I have dignity. I have value. All should bow and respect me. Or, on the athletic field, I'm the best Football player, I'm the best uh, receiver on this football team, therefore I matter. Or at work, my numbers are the best. If anybody else is this quarter, I've got the plaque to prove it. I matter. Or uh, uh, at, in the family, I'm the best dad in this neighborhood. Everyone else should bow down to my awesome dadness because of how, and I'm valuable because of my awesome dadness. We can do this with Anything. How you look, how you cook, um, how much you weigh, what your house looks like, uh, what kind of car you drive. We are constantly in the business of comparing, and it is a losing proposition. The reason it's a losing proposition is there will always be someone who is better than you. This is not the place to find validation. It's not the place to find worth. It's not the place to find that you matter, I can just uh, tell you about one illustration of how this works in my own life. Um, Maybe you'll recognize some of the elements. I, for my professional development and my own spiritual growth, I listen to a lot of preachers. And I try to listen to good preachers. I listen to preachers when I'm walking around town early in the morning. And if you're going to keep my attention when I'm huffing and puffing up George Street, you better be interesting. Interesting. So I listen to good preachers, but occasionally I end up listening to uh, uh, preachers that are in my class of preachers. And, and one of two things happens when I listen to these guys, my peers. On the one hand, sometimes I listen and I think to myself, you know, I'm better than that guy. I can handle the text better than him. So I, that's pretty good. And then sometimes I listen to a guy and think to myself, oh my goodness, I would never be able to do that. That's just astounding. Where did he, how did he see that in the text? And he's such, he's delivery so good and he's 10 years younger than I am. And oh my God, I'm terrible. Pride or despair, that's where I end up. And that's the roller coaster that you end up with on if you spend your life trying to find value and worth in your life by comparing or contrasting yourself with other People. There's got to be something better. There's got to be some better place to find a, a, a home and security than in comparing yourself to someone else. Well, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that Jesus is speaking about here in Matthew five—that's what they do. Though they compare themselves, they are—they think the standard of righteousness and And Jesus says, "No, no, no. God is the perfect one. We aim, we live by His standard." So that's God's holiness. Now, I should say that there is one place in the Bible where, at least one, where the Bible uses the word good to describe holiness in the sense that I have described it this morning. In fact, it's in Luke chapter 18, a conversation that Jesus has. Look what the text says. A certain ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. I know that's using the word good to describe God's holiness, but that's not the same way I want to think about God's holiness, God's goodness in Matthew 7. In fact, when we come to Matthew 7, God's goodness here describes him in his generosity. Not his moral uprightness, but his generosity. God is good in that he is kind he is merciful. He is tender-hearted. He is inclined to help people, to heal them, to bless them, and to provide for them. Um, A.W. Tozer, in his classic book, Knowledge of the Holy, said this about God's goodness. The goodness of God is that which disposes him to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of goodwill toward men. He is tender hearted and of quick sympathy, and his unfailing attitude toward all moral beings is open, frank, and friendly. Huh. Do you often think of God as friendly? God is friendly. By his nature, he is inclined to bestow blessedness, and he takes holy pleasure in the happiness of his people. Now, the goodness of God, I confess, is a truth that we are disinclined to believe. Uh, We are also disinclined to believe in God's holiness, or or, or at least we're disinclined to like it. Uh, The reason being, of course, verse 11, what Jesus says about us. If you then, though you are evil. That's a stark statement. Jesus speaking to these people. You know what? You are evil. How does Jesus evaluate your moral character? He says, you're evil. And evil people don't like holiness. God's holiness is so significant, so weighty, it is consuming. God's holiness consumes evil, so we, we don't like God's holiness. But we, we have questions about God's goodness too. How can it be, we wonder, this is, this is our, the natural way we, we are, how can it be that there would be a God who is as good as the one who is described in the Bible? That can't be true. It's too good to be true um several years ago i read a book i read the book uh, white fang by jack london maybe some of you have read it or you've read the companion opposite story call the wild but white fang it tells the story of a of a pup that is born into a litter in a wolf pack and he's born into a harsh broken mean world and White Fang, uh, when he's born, he's the only one of his litter to survive because all of the other pups in the litter uh, die from starvation. Early on the story in White Fang's life, his father goes uh, to find uh, uh, food and he comes across an, uh, a den where there's a lynx and, and the lynx has kittens and the, the, uh, White Fang's father goes to get the kittens to eat the kittens and the lynx pounces on him and, and kills the father. White Fang's mother comes along and and sees the dead body and fights herself with the lynx and kills the lynx, just barely survives. And for the weeks that that, uh, she is recovering, White Fang, this little pup, and his mother sit and eat the lynx and the the kittens, her kittens, in order to survive while she recovers. White Fang is eventually uh, captured by a, uh, a native uh, tribe in Alaska, and he joins a pack of the natives, uh, and they're awful to him. And then eventually, he's sold into the dogfighting circuit. And in Alaska, men will come and, and they will pay money and bet on which one of these animals is going to win in this dogfight. And White Fang is there, and he's vicious. He snarls, He's mean. He's violent. He's angry. One day, a man comes by the name of Whedon Scott, and he insists and buys. White Fang. And he takes White Fang into his life. And in the course of weeks and weeks of work, of very patient kindness on the part of Whedon Scott, he tames and trains White Fang so that White Fang becomes a member of his family. The way the Bible describes us, we are more like feral dogs than like children. And how can it be that there would be a God who would be as kind as the God described in the Bible? I'm looking forward to this fall with our staff uh, reading a book by Dane Ortland called "Gentle and Lowly: The Heart of Sinners, uh, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers." I've dipped my toes into the book a little bit. Here's what Dane Ortland says about God's goodness. Look. Nowhere else in the Bible is God described as rich in anything. The only thing he is called rich in is mercy. What does this mean? It means that God is something other than what we naturally believe him to be. It means the Christian life is a lifelong shedding of tepid thoughts of the goodness of God. In his justice, God is exacting. In his mercy, God is overflowing. Your view, listen to this, he would say it to you, your view of the goodness of God is tepid. It's flavorless. It's like popcorn without butter and salt or anything without butter and salt. <laughs> it's, it's bland. It's tepid. It's not nearly as strong and weighty and, and solid as it should be. Here's another uh, gem from this book. The Christian life, from one angle, is the long journey of letting our natural assumptions about who God is over many decades fall away, being slowly replaced with God's own insistence on who he is. The fall in Genesis 3, we embraced evil in Genesis 3, not only sent us into condemnation and exile, the fall also entrenched in our minds dark thoughts of God, thoughts that are only dug out over multiple exposures to the gospel over many years Perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life today is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts of God's heart that cause you to go there in the first place and keep you cool toward him in the wake of it. You don't think highly enough of God's goodness. There are things in this life that you pursue that you think will be better than the goodness of God, and they're not, but you pursue those things because you have a tepid view of the goodness of God. And then when you have fallen into sin, you don't run to him because you doubt his goodness to receive and forgive you. The greatest evidence, of course, in the Bible is of the goodness of God is the gift of his own dear son, God is rich in mercy, and because of that, he gave us his son. He sent his son to teach us about him. More importantly, he sent his son to rescue us from our sin. This one, this son of God who lived this perfect life and then died on the cross, not for his own guilt, but for our guilt, he died bearing God's wrath in our place. He died, rose again, and ascended into heaven, and, and offers life and forgiveness to all who will receive it by faith. It's the invitation of the Bible to all people to turn to Him and trust in Him and find life in His name. There is the goodness, the goodness of God, forgiveness that is rich and free. And Your acquaintanceship with the goodness of God, which may take decades to develop, changes you. It changes you, and this paragraph is about how the goodness of God changes you, and I want to show you two ways that Jesus highlights. First, we're going to talk about the goodness of God makes you a praying person. Believing in the goodness of God makes you a praying person. This is one of the most well-known passages in the Bible, where God, uh, where Jesus talks about prayer. It's a surprising passage in how broad it is. How broad this promise: everyone who asks receives. Oh, that's broad, and it's a little frustrating too, because it's so broad. Jesus, as it were, Frederick Bruner says, Jesus, it's almost as if he is begging us to pray. <laughs> Everyone who asks receives, so ask, ask. Is Jesus overpromising? You don't have to be a follower of Jesus very long before you start accumulating a list of things you have asked for that you have not received. So what's Jesus doing in this this passage? It's a good question. I want to try to answer that a a little bit as as we move through this passage. Why did Jesus return to prayer here at this point in time? He'd already talked about prayer. He's given us the Lord's prayer as a model for how we pray. Why here is he returning to the subject of prayer in this spot in the Sermon on the Mount? He's wrapping things up. Why does he go back to prayer? I think the reason is... Because uh, he is, the demands that he has made on us in the Sermon on the Mount are so impossible that you might be discouraged at this point in time, thinking to yourself, who is equal to this sort of life? Jesus has described a life that, that is turned from unrighteous, selfish anger, it's a life that's filled with forgiveness. Is there anybody around you who lives close to you that you're having uh, a hard time forgiving? There's uh, Jesus has called us to a life uh, that is vicious with lust. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. He calls us to live a life of of honesty here, love for our enemies, don't live for the appearance of of the credit that other people will bring you, don't uh, store up treasures for yourself on earth, Uh, don't worry, and set aside critical judgment of other people. Who is equal to that sort of life? Is there anyone who measures up to the standard of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is giving us here? So what do we do about it? What do we do about the fact that we don't measure up? Jesus says, pray, ask God to help you. I think that's the focus of Jesus. The promise is broad. I think the focus, though, in its place in the Sermon on the Mount is that God helps us when we come to him and ask him for help to do what he has commanded us to do. I make that connection in part because of the parallel passage in Luke 11. Jesus preached a sermon very similar to this that Luke recorded. And look what he says, how Luke is a little bit different than Matthew. If you then, Jesus says, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So in Matthew, it's good gifts. In Luke 11, it's the Holy Spirit. Why? Jesus is very direct here. Take any of the commands, anything that I have just told you to do, take any of them. And when you fail at them, ask for forgiveness and my Father will forgive you. And then ask him for help and he will help you. Why will God help you? Because he's good. Because God is good. And he will hear you and he will help you. He will help you not because you have prayed the right way, not because you've mastered the formula for prayer, not because you've used the right words. He will help you because he is good. And Jesus teaches us this way by way of contrast. Think about what happens in your family when you ask your father for something. When you ask for bread, he doesn't give you a stone. When you ask for fish, he doesn't give you a snake. Now I know some of you have rotten fathers. I understand that. But Jesus, you don't have to be even a semi-decent father to know that, this, that, that you're not supposed to give a kid who asks for a fish a snake. You're evil and you know not to do that. Just think about what your father in heaven does when you come and ask him. This is, uh, he, he says, your Father in heaven. The next time you read through the Gospel of Matthew and you read through the Sermon on the Mount, underline in your Bible all the places where it says Father in heaven or heavenly Father. How many times Jesus uses those words to describe our Father. He is making the appeal on the basis of family. There are things that you can ask your family that you can't ask other people I was reminded this week of how that extends even into adulthood. So Monday morning, I got up, and I got my kids ready and off to school, and then I did a little exercising, and I went into the kitchen to wash my hands when I was done, and uh, I turned on the water and turned the faucet on, and nothing came out of the faucet. There was no water. They were doing work up here, these bathrooms up here, and they turned off the water, and they turned off the water to my house. It is hard to take a shower if you don't have water. And it's hard to go to a funeral if you haven't taken a shower. They frown on that. So the first thing I did was curse Steve Schmucker, turning off my water. And then, then I thought to myself, I know what I'll do. I'll call my parents and go take a shower at their house. How easy would that be, right? Grab some soap. I don't need shampoo, and go over, and I can take a shower at their house and get dressed, and that'll be just fine. You can do that with your parents, right? Now, there's some of you who are kind in this room, and you know you can say, you would come up to me and say, hey, you can come take a shower at my house any time, but let's be honest, that would just be weird, right? That'd be a little awkward for me to come and say, hey, can I come and take a shower at your house? That'd be weird, but you can ask your father that any ask, Jesus says. Your Father in heaven will good, give good gifts to those who ask him. Now this analogy that Jesus is using might help us a little bit uh, in knowing how to respond when God doesn't answer. Remember that list that you have in your mind of things you've asked for that you haven't received? Maybe I, I look at this list, these analogies that Jesus is using. And I think that sometimes I, I am not very good at praying. I'm not very insightful. I'm not very wise. And sometimes I'm sure when I think I need bread, I actually end up asking for stones. And that when I need fish, I sometimes, I'm foolish, I ask for snakes. And God says, no, I'm glad he doesn't give me snakes when I ask for them. Sometimes, this is part of parenting, isn't it? Part of your responsibility as a parent is to say no to all the wacky ideas your toddlers come up with, right? You should say yes as much as you can to your children. This is a pattern. If you're modeling God's fatherhood to them, say yes as much as you possibly can, but there are times that you just have to say no, right? Can we have pixie sticks for dinner tonight? No. Right? You say no. Um, Alec Moitier uh, is a Bible scholar. He passed away a couple years ago, and uh, he said this. If it were the case that whenever we ask, whenever we ask, God was pledged to give, then I, for one, would never pray again because I would not have sufficient confidence in my own wisdom to ask God for anything. And I think if you consider it, you would agree it would impose an intolerable burden on frail human wisdom if by his prayer promises God was pledged to give whatever we ask, when we ask it, and in exactly the terms we ask, how could we bear the burden? There's a reason that your three-year-old is not in charge of your family meal planning and your family schedule, because they're crazy. And there are times that your Father in heaven... Uh, recognizes the folly that we don't in the things that we ask. He gives good gifts. The word seek, actually, it's ask and it will be given to you. Seek, that word seek does imply a little bit of ignorance. God, I don't know exactly what I need, but I'm coming for you for the help that you promised to give. You have given us these commands. Now help me, help me, help me, please. Believing in the goodness of God makes you a praying person. Secondly, though, believing in the goodness of God makes you a generous person. Makes you a generous person. Verse 12 is one of the most famous verses in all the Bible. And everything do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Here's the golden rule. And the golden rule here is kind of a bookend to a conversation that Jesus started back in Matthew 5.17. I think, yes. Look at 5.17. 5.17 do not think that i have come to abolish the law of the prophets i have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them and then in in chapter 7 verse 12 now he summarizes them i have not come to abolish the law and the prophets here's a summary of the law and the prophets summaries like this are well-known in the ancient world and well-known in other faiths in fact there was a rabbi who lived a few years before jesus who said someone asked him can you summarize the law and he said yes here's my summary of the law Don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. See the difference? Some people have described that as the silver rule, and this is the golden rule. Do to others what you would have them do to you. Don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. As far as we know, Jesus is the first person in history who said this positively, this summary like this. And notice how different it is. It mandates action. Don't do to people what you don't want them to do to, other, to, your, to you means you, you don't have to act. You don't have to do anything to obey that law. You, you, can, you can be completely passive and obey that command. But Jesus' command, though, is, it mandates action. Do to others what you would have them do to you. Think this eminently practical counsel from the Lord Jesus. Think what in this situation would, would, would help that person, would bless that person, would be of benefit to them? What, what would they like? Think about how your marriage would be different if this was the principle by which you operated. Or how different you would be at work if this rule ran through your mind. You walk into the kitchen, and it's a mess. Do to others what you would have them do to you, right? It's eminently practical. The question is, why do we treat people this way? Why would we do that? And the answer is, the goodness of God. God has been so good to us that we are good to others as as an overflow of the goodness of God. Um, John said something like like what I'm just saying in 1 John 4. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love... Now, the obvious answer would be God, right? Does that make sense? Hey, God loves us, we should love him. That's not what the apostle says. He says, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The Church of Jesus Christ... A congregation like ours is to be warm with love because we are heated by the furnace of God's love for us. I had the privilege of growing up in western New York near Letchworth State Park. Letchworth State Park is the best state in America, a best state park in America. And I say that because it's objectively true because they've taken a poll and proven that it was accurate Never mind that 49 million New Yorkers voted. It's true, okay? This is the way it is. Electro State Park is a beautiful state park in Western New York. You should go sometime. Uh, If you go, you can uh, visit the hospital where I was born and light a candle, and that will be nice. So, Letchworth State Park is 17 miles long, pretty narrow, and it follows the Genesee River as it flows through western New York, and uh, it's, it's filled with um, uh, this gorge, and there's waterfalls. The river flows through this uh, beautiful gorge, um, so when you come to Pennsylvania, say, this is the Grand Canyon of the East, uh, Grand Canyon of Pennsylvania, this is the real Grand Canyon of the East Coast. So uh, uh, Letchworth State, it's beautiful, it's beautiful. Genesee River. In the springtime, snow melts, rains come, and that gorge fills with water the genesee river uh uh uh, overflows its banks and in disastrous years it floods the city of rochester so in 1944 they built the dam the army corps of engineers took them four years they built this uh dam actually 48 is when they started they built this dam in the town of mount morris and uh this uh, is a beautiful dam that protects the city of rochester in the springtime Uh, again snow melt rain This gorge can fill with water. There was a hurricane, Agnes, in 1972, where the water got up to within a few feet of the top of the dam, filling this gorge. The dam's a hydroelectric dam. What it's supposed to do, its design is to produce electricity and to uh, send the water that gathers, uh, send it out and distribute it north of the the dam to provide for the land that's there. It's supposed to uh, uh, gently let the water flow to refresh the land north of Mount Morris. Now I want you to think about this here. In his goodness, In his goodness, God fills our lives and then we distribute that goodness to others. The goodness that we introduce, the love that we show to others is the overflow of the love of the goodness that we have received from God. Here's what I think Jesus is saying in Matthew 7, 7 through 12. Pray yourself full and then love yourself empty. Pray yourself full and then love yourself empty. Do that, and you know what will happen? You will discover the wonders of happiness. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you today because you have commanded us to do so and because you are good. Lord, we feel the burden of the commands that the Lord Jesus has set down for us, this beautiful life that we have no hope of, of on our own living we, f- we, f- we fail at this. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this promise that you gave that when we ask and seek and knock at, on the throne room of heaven, our Father who is good will, will supply and help us. Lord, we do pray that you would fill our lives with your goodness, that we might then share it with those around us. Do this for the sake of your Son, in whose name we pray together, saying, Amen.